imagine the person walking down the street who has this anatomy which bit is this bit how many holes are down there all these things that the general public might actually not know so bringing the knowledge to them via tiktok instagram i think is a really good thing Hello and welcome to A Slice in Time with me, Linda, host and creator of Widlands, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay in touch and keep up to date by following Widlands on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find comprehensive show notes with references and further reading related to this episode and more content on my website lindadoes.com forward slash widlimbs25 for this particular episode. Please note that this is a podcast for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as individual medical advice. This episode features Dr. Rumbi, a medical doctor and qualified midwife, author and content creator based in the UK. We discuss a whole range of topics, including her journey into medicine via midwifery and the interplay between doctors and other healthcare professionals. We also discuss medical education, in particular when it comes to reproductive health, stigma surrounding that area and where education could do better. And we also talk a little bit about the work Rumbi has done in widening access to medicine. So there's quite a few different topics covered and it was a great discussion, so I hope you enjoy it. Let's get straight into it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And for anyone who doesn't know you, could you tell us a little bit about you? Yes, my name is Rumbi. I am a junior doctor within the NHS. This is my third year as a doctor now. It's crazy to think. Prior to becoming a doctor, I was a midwife. And prior to that, I also worked in the NHS, but I don't want to be showing my age on here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and I think really as part of my working life, I've developed things that I'm particularly interested in and passions. And that's led me to using social media as a way of not only spreading information or, or disseminating knowledge, which sometimes is, is difficult for people to find, but also, you know, information which relates to widening access to medicine. And it helps me connect with other people within medicine and seeing what they're doing with their careers and being like, oh, my God, I can do that as well. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, my name is Rumbi. I am a doctor. I used to be a midwife. I also wrote a book. So I call myself an author, too. Oh, I didn't um, know about that. What, what's your book about? What's it called? It is, it's called Catharsis. It is a poetry book. It's a collection of poems that I wrote before I started med school. I only released it this year, but mm. the the last poem I wrote was basically before I went to study medicine. After that, I haven't written anything. Medicine has taken up my whole life. Uh, I know, like so many medics have this creative side, I think, to just balance stuff out. Like for me, it's stands or this podcast. But then a lot of the time, you know, it's like like a coping mechanism for the like busy life of being a medic. But then a lot of people yeah. seem to kind of lose that a little bit as they graduate, which is really sad. It's yeah, it's, I, I am one of those people. <laughs> okay, well, that's amazing. And so I was just interested in your journey just into medicine as well. So how come you did midwifery first was you know was it always in the back of your mind that you wanted to be a doctor and like kind of what was your path into medicine mm, so I always wanted to be a doctor uh, for me that's what I thought 
my future career would be, what I would enjoy the most. And so during A-levels, I applied to study medicine for medicine choices. And for that fifth choice, I don't know if it's still the same now, but when I was applying with UCAS, they recommended that you only use four of your options for medicine and your fifth option, you think about something else. Yeah. And so my fifth choice, instead of, you know, a lot of people had suggested, oh, why don't you do biomed or chemistry or biological sciences or something like that? That's something I, I knew personally. If I did that degree, for example, if I did a biomed degree and then three years later, four years later, applied for medicine and didn't get in, now I'm stuck with a biomed degree that I did not want to begin with. Mm. That wasn't for me. I knew the more vocational courses were better suited to my personality and what I would enjoy in life if I then didn't get into medicine. So that was things like midwifery, nursing, physiotherapy. And I also looked a little bit at radiography, but it was more so those three, midwifery, Mm -hmm. physiotherapy and nursing, kind of in that order for me. And I put my third choice as uh, my fifth choice, pardon me, as midwifery and I didn't look back I got in I studied and at the end of my second year going into the final year of my midwifery degree you could apply for other courses if you wanted to because they would then start after you'd finished so I applied for medicine again and I got in and here we are Mm. yeah that's so interesting I think yeah I put pharmacology as my fifth thing but it wasn't really something I wanted to do as well Yeah, you actually worked as a midwife as well then? I did work as a midwife. And so, you know, things working out for the best. When you do medicine as a second degree, unfortunately, because it's still an undergraduate degree, the funding is minimal. So Mm. again, at the time that I applied, there was no tuition fee loan and you had to pay for it, basically. So I worked as a midwife and it paid for my well not all of it but paid for the majority of my medical degree Mm. so that worked out really well for me ultimately amazing so I know you you will have had an Obsangaini placement in medical school did you do an F2 job in Obsangaini at all I did I did do an F2 job in Obsangaini and so how was it sort of with your midwife background as a medical student in your placement and also as a junior doctor working in obstetrics and gynecology as a medical student it was fine I don't really think anyone knew that I was a midwife because it was in a different hospital than the hospital that I worked in Mm -hmm. um it was probably like only one or two people that knew ultimately and that was maybe towards the end of my placement um so that was fine as a doctor it was really interesting I thoroughly enjoyed my obstetrics and gynecology job it was in in midwifery and also as a medical student you really only get a snapshot of things but working as part of the team as an F2 both in gynecology and obstetrics seeing the theatres the clinics you know a, a, a more rounded view of what the profession involves I really did enjoy the job and I enjoyed the work that we did within the job some of the midwives knew that I was a midwife Mm-hmm. I don't know how oh no I told one of the doctors knew and then she like told everyone <laughs> which is fine but it didn't really impact our working relationship at all I don't think it made that much of a difference mm-hmm. 
to my experience of the job and or my experiences with my colleagues, which to me, that would be if it impacted my my interactions with my colleagues, I think that would have been the biggest thing for me. Like, oh, I don't want them to know just in case they treat me differently. Yeah. But it didn't it didn't really impact that for me at all. Okay. When you say it treats me differently, like what would be the worry? I think I think it's just would be interesting to talk a little bit about, you know, the MDT, like the multidisciplinary team and just it's so interesting, I think, the almost hierarchy that exists sometimes in hospitals between, uh-huh. you know, the doctors, nurses, midwives, physios, OTs, all of these allied um, healthcare professions. And, you know, wrongly, I think that a lot of the time doctors are put at, at the top of that. And I think that's, you know, I get uncomfortable <laughs> with that. And I think it would be worth chatting a little bit about that as well. For me, I think being treated differently would have been a higher level of expectation to say, you know, you're already familiar with this environment. Mm. You've done things like this for how many years already? You should know this already or, you know, that type of higher expectation. That would have been my fear about being treated differently. I completely agree in terms of the MDT that sometimes it's found that um, doctors find themselves at the top of the MDT in whatever this hierarchy is. Mm -hmm. And it's more so that it should be level because we all bring different expertise. That's why there's a MDT. We all look at things from different perspectives. And sometimes you do see it break down um, in different settings because everyone's agenda is different, if that makes sense. So just as an example, uh, let's say we're on a care for elderly medicine ward. Mm -hmm. The physician's end goal might be for this patient to be discharged home. The occupational therapist's end goal might be that the house isn't ready. So we can't discharge them home yet. And trying to liaise between those teams where the family is being told by the medical team that you're fit for di- your relative is fit for discharge, they're ready to go home. Mm-hmm. Whereas, for example, the occupational therapy team, or maybe even the physiotherapy team might say, okay, they are, we are, we're not comfortable with them being home because their home is not suitable or their mobility is not what we would expect it to be. And navigating all of those things, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. I have friends that are nurses and they often say, you know, like, oh, why didn't the doctor see that? And, you know, like, there's a lot of kind of miscommunication. And I think it's interesting to think about like people having different agendas or different perspectives to the agenda, because hopefully everyone's sort of thinking about the patient, but it's just kind of in different ways. Uh But so I think with midwifery often midwives tend to kind of run the labor boards and then the doctors kind of step in with the complicated births did you find that that was all okay from your perspective yeah absolutely fine I think the UK's birthing system is one which says most or all women will have a midwife and will be looked after by a midwife the involvement of obstetrics or obstetricians is when there's complexity or their risk factors which are beyond the scope of practice of midwives, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, even the most complicated, high-risk woman, if they're giving birth, uh, we call it spontaneously, if they're giving birth without assistance, 
And by assistance, I mean things like forceps, fontus, you know, instruments. If they're giving birth without assistance, they will be delivered by a midwife. And thus the constant on a pregnant person's journey becomes the midwife and the input comes from the obstetric team. That's why there's this thing about midwives running the labor ward, mostly because they are the constant in that Mm -hmm. pregnant person's journey. And so that is their domain, you know, that is, that is their place of work. What can be complicated is if you're working from different models, if, for example, the midwife looking after this birthing person is promoting normality to the, not necessarily to the extreme, but we're going to do something polarizing and say to the extreme. And there are some risk factors where an obstetrician is involved and the obstetrician is encouraging intervention maybe sooner than another obstetrician would encourage it. And that's where you might get friction, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, part of where there's this myth about labor wards being a difficult place for obstetric doctors because midwives are this way or that way um, or become strong-headed or things like that. I don't think that's the case. I think Mm -hmm. everyone genuinely wants to do the best for the person who's delivering, but we all see things from a different perspective. And I think I am one of very few people with a unique view of having been on both sides of that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. Moving on and talking a little bit about medical education, I was wondering, are there any particular things that you learned in your education as a midwife that you then was quite surprised wasn't covered in medical education later on for you? Do you know, thinking about it, I don't think so. I think Broadly, in terms of anatomy, physiology, that was, we could have used exactly the same textbook in Mm. medicine or in midwifery. You know, it was quite comparable in terms of the core knowledge that I was taught or expected to know within both courses. Okay. So on your Instagram and your TikTok, you produce a lot of this amazing educational content like reels and videos and posts and things like that and you focus quite a lot on talking about gynecological health and reproductive health Um, and part of that is you know you've said that there's a lot of stigma about it and even in medical school you commented on sort of the diagrams not always kind of maybe being that comprehensive and actually I in terms of my ed- medical education in Obsangaini, I did my penultimate year, which is when we had uh, the Obsangaini block. That was my block started in March 2020. So I had two weeks oh. of placement and then the rest of it was actually remote. So we had quite a few like video lectures and things. But then in terms of studying for the exam, we were encouraged. They, I think they recommended a couple of textbooks, but it was a, it was quite you know self-directed, which was OK. But actually, I think that makes it quite different for everyone because it depends on what areas you seek out and sort of you know want to delve a bit more into so I didn't necessarily have kind of a standardized view I don't I don't know necessarily like if it makes sense what they would have 
taught me if I hadn't sort of had to do that a bit more for myself. So yeah, it would be interesting to hear, you know, from your perspective that we've already kind of chatted a little bit about in terms of the medical education and what you were taught and what was maybe glossed over. I find, so I went to university in Belfast. I studied medicine at Queen's University, Belfast. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is a quick Google search and it will tell you sometimes the differences in cultural context there, as well as laws. You know, the laws in Northern Ireland are not necessarily the same laws that are in England, Scotland, nor in Wales. Mm -hmm. And particularly with certain aspects of reproductive rights, for example, abortion was only decriminalized in Northern Ireland in 2019. I went to, I graduated in 2020, you know. So the majority of my medical education there, that's not something that was legal. Mm. Well, it's not legal in England per se, but it's something that was a criminal act, if that makes sense. Yes. And so sometimes, and also, again, from my colleagues that were in in my cohort, those that had gone to school within Northern Ireland, because the the law there allowed particular discretion with regards to sex education, for example, there were a lot, it's not that they were, there are a lot of religious schools in Northern Ireland in that you might go to a Catholic school or you might go to a, a Protestant school, for example, a different type of grammar school. And so there was inconsistencies about the knowledge that people had as they were entering medical school, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. So I find that I don't think I had to educate myself per se, because I had that knowledge maybe from midwifery. And also I was surrounded by, you know, the people that were my friends, the people that I studied with were very open-minded and so we sought out other types of knowledge too to really supplement what we were getting from uni but it was more so that we had the textbooks and you had to know what was in the books but the lectures delivered didn't always cover all things and there were times where people you know if they wanted to step out and didn't feel comfortable being in a lecture about a particular topic could do so because again the GMC will the GMC allows to say if you don't feel comfortable delivering for example abortion care as long as you can refer someone to a physician who can then that's fine so I think that was that was part of that within my medical medical education Mm. so it's difficult isn't it I think even for example social media Instagram senses images like educational images of anatomy of of genitalia Mm. even like educational diagrams that are annotated those would be censored a lot of the time on social media and if your lecturer doesn't feel comfortable pointing out oh and this is a labia and this is this this is that they will just gloss over that, you know, oh, and this is this slide, next slide, please. Mm. And it's then up to us to go and make sure we've really read that and know the anatomy. 
I think also a lot of medical text images didn't include the clitoris for many years. Mm. So it's little things like that. It's important. So if me with two degrees could have missed out on that knowledge, imagine the person who's walking down the street who has this anatomy but doesn't know what what is this, you know? Mm. Which bit is this bit? How many holes are down there? All these things that the general public might actually not know. So bringing the knowledge to them via TikTok, via Instagram, Mm. I think is a really good thing. Absolutely. How would you say, you know, during your medical education, do you feel, especially like you said, having had most of your Obzangani placement being remote, Mm. do you think you were equipped with everything you needed to come out the other side? So like I I was saying, you know, like you kind of got what you put into it and then you you had to sort of do a lot of self-study. I think that we had some really good lectures on the, you know, the core presentations and various things in obstetrics and gynecology, like, you know, very disease focused, I suppose. Uh But then in terms of, you know, sexual wellness and, you know, reproductive health and like talking about that side of things, I don't think that was really covered in the general Zoom lectures that we had. Um, And then as I'm someone that's interested in that stuff, just from, you know, talking to friends and stuff, but also in terms of actually learning about it so that I can be better equipped to talk about it with patients. Uh I definitely sort of had a look through the textbooks. The textbook did have some chapters that was on sexual wellness and, and even things like, um vaginismus that I've done an epi- a podcast episode on before because I think that's something that really isn't covered very much um you know I read a little bit there was like a, a little bit of information in the textbook and I think that was maybe mentioned um as like in a pelvic pain thing but then I think you know it's something that's quite common or just even endometriosis again that was covered but I think it's not always drummed into us in terms of you know it takes seven and a half years on average to be diagnosed with something like endometriosis. Like I think oh. these things just need to be more in the focus and yeah. not, and you know, people think as well about like, you know, women's health and everyone needs to know about it. That's becoming healthcare professionals, whether you're specifically interested in women's health or not. It's not just women that get affected by these things. You've got trans and non-binary people as well. And that uh-huh. side of things as well, that was definitely, you know, never mentioned um, in my medical ed- education in terms of just the diverse range of people that can present with these various things. So in terms of the trans and non-binary side of things, that's something that I sought out a bit more information on and, you know, learned a bit more about that. But uh, again, just completely glossed over. So that's a very long winded way of saying that. I think that probably a lot of people missed out on this sort of thing because they yeah. weren't necessarily, it wasn't highlighted to them. Um, and then they didn't either know about it in order to, you know, seek out more information for themselves or they just weren't interested. And if you're not interested, you can definitely just not learn it. Uh, uh-huh. I, I agree, actually. I think, for example, something like vaginismus, we had an amazing GP tutor. She covered all these things in a way that if she wasn't there then maybe my whole class wouldn't have known what Mm -hmm. vaginismus was and I think 
we need more diversity within our medical educators. It's, I think, characteristically, sometimes we find the people that go into medical education are 20 years down the line in their career and aren't necessarily the most diverse set of doctors. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) What I think is great now is the education fellowships. So the clinical fellowships that a lot of people are taking a year out early in their career to do. So for example, as part of a a locum year before going into specialty training Mm. or a locum year within specialty training. And that way you're getting fresh, energized, excited and more worldly doctors going Mm. into medical education. I think that's really, really valuable. You've done some work in terms of widening access to medicine. Mm. Do you want to talk a bit about what you've been doing with that? Yes. So when I applied, which feels like years and years ago, can I even say decades ago? So when I applied for medicine, I think you had to firstly know someone to help you, for example, get work experience or get a true insight into what a career in medicine was, not just what you read for example or what you saw on tv what Grey's Anatomy made it seem like it was Mm -hmm. and if you didn't have anyone to call on any relatives friends friends of the family to assist with that it was actually quite difficult the next thing is things like personal statements and how to present yourself in your personal statement in a way which is appropriate for medicine so our careers tutors for example at college they are used to reading personal statements for all things and all courses and they can advise on a generic personal statement but not necessarily a medicine specific one Mm -hmm. and again that's something that if you had a relative or knew someone who knew someone who was in medicine they could assist you with that as well as interview practice oh my goodness again tutors at college could give you generic interview practice they weren't necessarily equipped to guide you on medical interviews and how to prepare for those because they're like OSCE style MMIs or oh I don't even remember what MMI stands for yeah the multiple mini interview yes yes that's it and so it's very difficult to to prepare for that if you have no one to help you prepare so Mm. Since then, I've been involved with various organizations in helping with practice interviews, with mock interviews, with reviewing personal statements. I have read a lot of personal statements now. And, you know, you can just offer some pointers or, you know, why don't you address teamworking a bit more? Why don't you address leadership a bit more? That type of thing. As well as various talks now that I've done on different routes into medicine. Mm. I know so many people that I, so many of my colleagues that are people from the UK that went to uni in Ukraine, for example, or went to study medicine in Lithuania or Romania, something that I didn't even fathom. I didn't even know that I could do this and then come back and work within the NHS just in the same way that I would work in the NHS having gone to uni in the UK Mm. and studying different courses. I think the graduate entry route to medicine was more widely known I think still is more widely known but just giving more people 
more information. And I think one of my proudest moments so far for something relating to kind of widening access is I did a virtual work experience, a session with the Diana Award and kind of facilitated some virtual work experience and roots into medicine and, you know, tips on personal statements, things like that for Mm -hmm. some of their young people. And that was amazing. I just thought to myself, if this had been there or if I'd known about things like this when I was applying, I may still not have got in. It may not have changed the impact, you know, Mm. but I would have just felt much more prepared both for the application process and for the interviews. Mm. Yeah, I applied to the UK while living abroad. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went to an international school and then there were a few different, you know, teachers that would support people into applying to UK universities but again, not specifically really for medicine always. In fact, they told me, you know, like, it's quite hard. Like, do you really want to do it? Like, they, were, <laughs> they weren't really supportive, in, in, you know, initially. Um, you know, it was a while back now, but it was so hard. And I think it's probably only just getting more difficult as well nowadays. Mm-hmm. I just think there might be more resources that certain people have access to, whereas maybe that it was a little bit more level even though it wasn't back in the day but I think even more so now like there might be courses that you can pay for and prep for and that people with you know wealthy parents they might be able to access that and yeah, yeah. if somebody is interested in getting involved in work to widen access to medicine um, is there any particular tips that you would have for that? For people that want to get involved and want to use the resources a few Charities and organizations that I know of and have been involved in in various ways. The first being the Diana Award, like I say, they do host virtual work experiences and mentorship. But one of the downsides of the Diana Award is that the mentorship is if you go to a particular school and usually it's limited to areas that are London or London adjacent. Okay. So you could be a mentor or you could be a mentee. Next is Melanin Medics and their charity, Mm. again, aiding career progression for medicine. And they are particularly targeted for African or Caribbean students. And again, these are households which may historically have less doctors and find it more difficult to enter into medicine. You'll find, I'm sure you found as well. And I found really interestingly, and I was so surprised coming from midwifery, is the minute I entered medicine, you see that it is genuinely a middle-class course. It's a middle-class degree. Yeah, There were very few truly working-class people in my cohort, I must say. It was a very much a middle-class degree. So you can see why it's important to have these types of organizations that help to widen access. An expensive one to do also, there's a lot of traveling, a lot of books, that you don't have to buy and a lot of other equipment for example stethoscope all these things and I mean the clothes you know the smart shoes all of that before scrubs were a thing but then a lot of people have to buy their own scrubs as well nowadays so yeah It, it does add up because my podcast is called what I didn't learn in medical school 
What is one thing that you wish all medical students were taught in medical school? And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to what we have talked about today, or it could be. I was listening to a podcast. It was with the doctor that's on Embarrassing Bodies, Dr. Anand Patel. He was a guest on someone else's podcast. And he was talking about male erections and how there can be signs of overall health of that particular person. So, for example, if they're presenting with erectile dysfunction, is it a psychological thing or is it that they have peripheral vascular disease? Mm. Is it a symptom of diabetes or high cholesterol, all these other things? And I thought to myself, it makes complete and utter sense that they would be linked. But nowhere in my medical education did someone take one and one and put them together for me. So it adds up to two until I listen to that podcast. And again, when you're delivering healthcare to people, you are getting people from all walks of life. Because for example, let's say that gentleman presenting with erectile dysfunction goes into an average GP surgery. They're given tablets, off you go. There's no further investigation of why they may be having this this issue and it just pinged a light in my head to say always think about things broadly no matter what the presenting complaint is just keep a an open mind before always just narrowing and focusing down on one thing that's something I hadn't learned in medical school or I had learned the two things separately but putting to putting them together was put together for me on a Mm. podcast (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting because that also sort of goes together with what we've said today that in terms of reproductive health, maybe not always being, you know, explored that much and it being stigmatised. So I'm currently in a F2 GP placement. And personally, I think that as a doctor, you you get a little bit, you know, desensitised sometimes. Like, sure, it can feel a bit awkward asking about the intimate details, but I think that's more because the other person maybe thinks it's awkward, which is, you know, fair enough. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, personally, you know, um, I don't feel that it's awkward and I don't particularly care about what people look like or their intimate sort of details. Like, I care about it, I want to know about it. Mm-hmm. But people, you know, they're they're embarrassed, they think it's awkward to talk about those sorts of things. But if it was generally, you know, less stigmatized and just more widely accepted to talk about it, it wouldn't be that awkward for me to, you know, be sat there asking, you know, very these intimate questions. And just because I need to know, it, that's what it comes down to. And it's not just, you know, because I'm trying to put someone in an awkward position. It's just our role to find out about that in terms of giving the best care that we can for our patients. So again, yeah, like I think that's something that probably maybe we should be asking more about sexual health in general, even when we don't think it's linked as well. Exactly. I think it takes a big societal shift for us to become more comfortable. And all these conversations that we're having with patients, that's a step closer. Mm. Because if any particular patient comes in and we really do drill down on the the exact intricacies of what's relevant, but even into their sexual well-being, their history... And the next doctor they see does exactly the same. And the next doctor they see does the same. Mm. It helps to build the comfort level, if that makes sense. Then they feel like, okay, this is just part of the medical questioning. This is part of the professional curiosity Mm. that my doctor has when they're looking after me. 
And so all of us have a role to play in that. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that summarizes everything very nicely, rounds it off really well. And thank you so much, Dr. Rumbi, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you, see the content that we've been discussing today? I would say come over to Instagram at Rumbi the Medic or TikTok again at Rumbi the Medic. It's all pretty much the same. I would say TikTok has more of a fun flair where you will get mostly medicine, but a bit of personality. Instagram is heavily medicine and a sprinkle of of personality (laughs) (laughs) okay amazing thank you so much thank you very very much thank you and that's the end of this episode i really hope you enjoyed it and learned something new and if you did why not share it with a friend family member or colleague Check out the show notes with links to anything mentioned in the episode on lindadas.com forward slash widlims25. Remember to follow me at widlims on Instagram and Twitter in order to stay up to date and give me feedback. I would love to hear from you. And again, please do share this episode and any others you might like around. I massively appreciate when you do and it really helps. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day and I'll catch you again in another episode. Bye!